Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We continue to celebrate the resurrection. We continue to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus. Your word reveals to us what the point of everything that happened to you on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago was and what the point of you rising again from the dead was. It reveals to us what the point of our salvation is, how it permeates every aspect of our lives, how it gives us the hope that we will be resurrected someday if we die before you come back, and that there will be a day when you will come back for us. You will call us up to yourself, and you will take us to be with you forever. We can't wait for that day, Lord. And in the meantime, uh, you have work for us to do here on this earth, uh, spreading your message, sowing your seeds of truth and love in this dark and hurting world, bringing more and more souls into the saving grace of your Son, bringing that hope of eternity to one more person. So Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would go forth, open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who here has heard of Wikipedia? Okay, I would expect most hands to go up. All right. The online encyclopedia known as Wikipedia first got its start on the internet in January 2001. I didn't know it was that old. Did you? That it was that old already? 2001. When it was created... Its intention was to create an encyclopedia not edited by one central body like Encyclopedia Britannica or another encyclopedia set, but able to be edited by lots of different people. Today, Wikipedia strives to be as accurate as possible, but in its early days, it was vulnerable to people slipping jokes or other inaccurate information in different articles, hoping to go unnoticed. In fact, in most, I remember in most of my college uh, curriculum, uh, it said, you are not allowed to use Wikipedia as a source for any of your research papers <laughs> because of, uh, of, of it being vulnerable to that. The following are some actual edits that appeared on Wikipedia, but since they were not serious, they were removed. Here's the first one. From Alternative Rock. We've heard of Alternative Rock before. Alternative Rock is a name given to one stone when you're looking at another stone. The term was coined by photographer Edwin Blastocyst when looking at one stone and speaking about another, oddly enough. Here's the next one. Coca-Cola in the wild. In its natural state, Coca-Cola is docile until it's attacked when it will spray sweet liquid on the predator. It has many foes such as teens, children, parents, or moviegoers. Yet it is often found and eaten. It does many things to protect itself. It may accidentally tip over when frightened or disguise itself as the less popular Pepsi, a little dig at that one, or Dr. Pepper. Still, even with its most creative attempts, its foes still find it. And the last one from Kool-Aid. The product mascot of Kool-Aid is a gigantic anthropomorphic pitcher filled with some kind of anonymous red liquid that seemingly at random bursts through walls with complete disregard for human life, causing countless thousands of dollars in property damage. He then chuckles and utters his thought-terminating catchphrase, oh yeah. He has yet to be apprehended, so if you know anything about the whereabouts of this wanted fugitive, please call 1-800-555-COOL or notify your local authorities and 
consider him armed and very dangerous. I'm glad we aren't reliant upon sources like Wikipedia for our information about Jesus, God, our salvation, where we will spend eternity, etc. Aren't you? In fact, all of our information about Jesus, including both the New Testament and the Old Testament, as Jesus references in our passage this morning, are 100% true and trusted throughout the ages. Our passage this morning, it, Jesus is continuing the conversation he was having with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, which we started a couple of weeks ago before Easter Sunday last week. Even though he doesn't need to do this as God, out of his grace, really, Jesus gives the bare minimum requirement of two witnesses to back up the validity of his deity and authority. Not just three, but goes above and beyond and gives four witnesses as required to, by Jewish law. We covered the first two a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist's testimony and the testimony of the miracles, signs, and wonders that only someone who is also God could do. Really, as we look at all four of these witnesses, all of their sources the same. And Jesus says that as he's uh, giving these sources. All of these four sources is one and the same. God the Father. And that's Jesus' point. The Pharisees were seeking all the more to kill Jesus following his claim that he was equal to God the Father. And so Jesus was citing as the source for all four of these legally valid witnesses to be none other than God the Father himself. First, we had the eyewitness testimony admitted into the legal proceeding, the eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist. Then we had several pieces of evidence admitted. So far, evidence A of turning the water into wine, evidence B of the healing of the royal official's son on the brink of death with only four words while still 20 miles away from him, evidence C of the healing of the man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years, not to mention all the other admittable evidences recorded in John 2:23, all the signs that Jesus had performed the last time he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, Jesus admits the third witness to the validity of his deity, that is, of an authority figure on behalf of Jesus, and really the authority figure over the entire universe, God the Father himself. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to John chapter 5. If you're having trouble finding it, that's fine. Look in the table of contents, ask a neighbor. No shame in that. John chapter 5, you can look this up in your favorite Bible app on your smartphone as well. We're going to pick up in verses 37 and 38. John chapter 5, verses 37 through 38. This is Jesus continuing his conversation with the Pharisees. And he says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. John doesn't record the first part of what Jesus is referring to here, but it's recorded in the other three Gospels. When Jesus was baptized and coming up out of the water, the voice of God the Father came out of heaven to confirm Jesus as the Son of God. And we read, this is my Son whom I love. Uh, a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my Son whom I love, with him 
I am well pleased. Not only that, but all four Gospels record, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So really, it's both of the other members of the Trinity who confirm Jesus' deity and authority, which Jesus references here in verse 37 of this morning's passage. The problem is that the Pharisees, who believed themselves to be the only non-spiritually blind people in Judaism, are some of the most spiritually blind people in Judaism. God the Father was quite clear in his testimony of Jesus' deity and authority. But the Pharisees were either just not listening or watching or because of the hardness of their hearts, not able to hear or see these testimonies. The evidence was there. The Pharisees just didn't see it or hear it. How many people are like that today? All the evidence for the existence of God, all the evidence for the deity and historicity of Jesus, all the evidence of the Holy Spirit changing lives, and they still remain willfully blind to all of it. This has been a problem ever since humanity existed. The Apostle Paul notes, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's a willful suppression. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. It's not that, see, according to this, it's not that God has made the truth about himself and his authority over our lives hard to find or hard to understand. It's quite the opposite. In fact, it's because humanity has willfully suppressed the truth of God in their sinfulness. That's blatantly obvious today, isn't it? God's truth is there in his word for anyone to find and follow, but because humanity does not want to be held accountable to it, or in its darkened mind refuses to acknowledge its existence. One very obvious and very simple example of all of this, and I'm not going to be politically correct now, I'm just warning you, is the confusion and heartache surrounding gender and sexual identity. As soon as you take one step outside of God's clear and simple blueprint for gender and sexual identity, established at creation and affirmed by Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, that he purposely created you with a specific biological gender, with the identity and role of that gender, and that he created a human sexual relationship to be one of marriage between one man and one woman, all bets are off. Suddenly, if that's not the standard, everything is open. And nothing is off limits. And there's no standard worth holding to. Everything is fluid, and that's what we're seeing. We are called to hold to the truth in love. It's not loving to withhold the truth. But we must do so by starting with the gospel message of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit then start to make any changes in people's lives. Likewise, the truth of God is very clear and very simple about what a human life is. 
Both David in Psalms and the prophet Jeremiah affirm that life begins at conception and God has a plan for you before that even happens. A human life starts at the moment of conception and that human life is created in the image of God. No human has the right to, that only belongs to God to take another human life, no matter what stage that human life is at. It is no human's right. It is only God's right to determine when a human's life ends. If you take even one step outside of that, suddenly everything is open to take that human life at any stage. And you are all of a sudden talking about two different states' bills that leave open the decriminalization of parental neglect of an infant after birth that leads to that infant's death. The problem is that humanity has purposely suppressed the truth of God in wickedness. When we get these most basic foundations of humanity wrong, regardless of faith, then it's no wonder that we will purposely in wickedness suppress the truth of God and his plan of salvation found in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They didn't think they needed any salvation, much less find it in the guy having a conversation with them who just claimed equality with God and the authority to judge their souls. But that still doesn't change the fact that God had already revealed what his truth, what his standards, and his salvation found only in Jesus are in his word. That none of that changes what the truth is. We can't claim ignorance. It's all already there. We either just refuse to look, look for it or willfully suppress the truth of God. The only remedy for any of the willful suppression of God's truth is to go back to the clear truth, clear standards, clear instruction found in God's word alone. If something doesn't line up with the truth and standards of God's word, guess what? It's not from God. And God is certainly not okay with it. No matter how many people are okay with it. In this world of double standards, confusing political correctness, and absurd redefining of words and concepts, we must first go back to God's word and seek his truth. This was the Pharisees' problem. Jesus first references in verse 38 that as much as the Pharisees thought they did, they had no clue what was the point of God's word. The point of God's word was not to prove themselves righteous through their obedience to the Mosaic law and their actions. The point of the Mosaic law that the Pharisees held above all else, even above loving and having compassion upon others, according to the writer of Hebrews, was to point out the gravity of sin and how much of a need we have for a deliverer from that sin. It wasn't for us to save ourselves. It was to see that we needed a deliverer from our sin. We referenced a portion of this passage at our Good Friday service uh, last week. But Hebrews says about the sacrifices of the Mosaic law, which the Pharisees held above all else, 
If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. That was the point of it. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Again, as Jesus references in verse 38, the Pharisees didn't have the word of God in them, for they completely misunderstood the point of all of it. The scriptures they had only went so far in God's plan for humanity, and the Pharisees thought it was the end of all of it. In reality, the point of the Old Testament was to point out humanity's sin and that humanity's only hope was for a deliverer from that sin. That's the fourth witness that Jesus admits as legal valid validity to his deity and authority and judgment over souls. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. In these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. See, just as Jesus said, the Pharisees had placed their trust for their eternal fates in just the written word. The written laws of Moses and the written prophecies applied them all to Israel and to themselves and believed they were their own salvation from their sin. If they could follow the laws as best as possible, they would save themselves. In reality, as Jesus points out here, everything that was in the Old Testament that the Pharisees had poured over all pointed to him as the only one who could save them. These are just a few. Speaking to Satan, but well within earshot of Adam and Eve having just sinned, this is the very first one. God says, And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The law would be powerless to crush the power of Satan. It would only be through one who would eventually come from the first woman. In Genesis 49, this one would specifically come from the tribe of Judah, connected to a star coming out of Israel in Numbers 24. In Deuteronomy 18, this one would be a prophet, revealing messages straight from God. And not only a prophet, but a king found in Psalm 72. First, second, uh, first Samuel 2 reverse that re- reveals that this one would be God's chosen one, or anointed one, or Messiah, being strengthened by God himself. According to 2 Samuel 7, this king would rule over an eternal kingdom that would have no end. Job 33 declares that this one would also be a mediator who would declare a person righteous because of a ransom paid. This prophet, king, and mediator would also be a priest, according to 1 Samuel 2. Entirely faithful to God as the representative between God and man. Beyond all of these descriptions of the positions, positions this chosen one would have, according to Isaiah 9, he would also be God. 
Perhaps most importantly, in Isaiah 53, this Messiah would suffer and die in order to pay for humanity's sins and provide them with salvation. How would this prophesied payment for humanity's sin come about? My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Did you know that when your arms are stretched out across a cross, it actually dislocates your shoulders? And so you're actually looking at a, your, a part of your shoulder area bones looking at you uh, through your skin if you're hanging on the cross. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Mind you, these words were written hundreds of years before something like this would have happened. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. All of this sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? Eerily familiar. Not only do we read that prophecy, but we also read, no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you, God, will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. So, what do we see here in the book of Psalms? We not only have clear prophetic references to death by crucifixion by this Messiah, but a subsequent resurrection from that death. In addition, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin woman, which comes back full circle to Genesis 3.15, where the descendant that would crush Satan's head comes from a woman. And Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in none other than Bethlehem. A couple years down the road from Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, the Messiah would fulfill Zechariah's prophecy that Israel's king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. In addition, Jesus points specifically to what Moses wrote about the Messiah. Skip forward with me a few verses, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We already mentioned a few times that Moses specifically prophesied about the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, about one coming from the woman who would crush Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, in which the rising of a star out of Israel would confirm the Messiah's arrival. The description of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 is a clear reference to the blood of the future lamb that would protect those covered by it from the wrath of God's judgment. I can't even get into all the hints at the Messiah's sacrifice in the Mosaic sacrificial system with the different sin offerings we talked about on Good Friday or how every single aspect and symbol of the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. Lastly, in Moses' last recorded words, he prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen 
to him. What would a prophet like Moses be? Certainly there were other prophets who would speak the word of the Lord that would serve Israel, but none of them had the relationship with God that Moses did. Moses knew God face to face and spoke with God personally. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai, just him and God, while God gave him the very law that the Pharisees were throwing in the face of God in the flesh. Moses saw God's back as he walked past him, and since the Apostle John says elsewhere that no one has ever seen God except for the Son of God, who Moses saw walk past him was probably Jesus before he came to earth as a human. And so, the same Moses and his writings, namely the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, was really the one accusing the Pharisees before God, since they were not listening to any of the prophecies about the very one standing in front of them that they're arguing with. As noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus as judge wouldn't even need to bring any accusations against the Jewish religious leaders for their failure to take him as Messiah and Savior, even though the end result would be the same. In a twist of irony, the one whose writings the the Pharisees were putting their trust in for their eternal salvation would, through those writings, prophesying the coming Messiah, condemn the Jewish religious leaders for their failure to take them seriously and apply them to the one standing right in front of them. And an even further twist of irony, it would be the religious leaders' obsession with killing the one, simply claiming to fulfill those messianic prophecies, found in Moses' writings that would fulfill some of the other Old Testament prophecies, the ones we've already mentioned about the Messiah's crucifixion, resurrection, and payment and redemption of sin, making those who take it for themselves righteous in God's eyes. The ones among whom God would not count as righteous in spite of a lifetime of trying to be righteous and putting their faith in the law instead of the one prophesied about in it would be the Pharisees and anyone else who refused to put their faith in the salvation won by the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. Verses 46 through 47 put the Pharisees in an impossible situation. If they affirmed that Moses' writings prophesied about a coming Messiah, who they had to put their trust in, regardless of it being Jesus or someone else, then their entire system of self-perceived righteousness would come crashing down. But if they affirmed that Moses didn't prophesy about a Messiah, then they would be denying what was clearly in his writings. Jesus was calling out, the absurdity of the reasoning the Pharisees were using to justify their beliefs. In the same way, biblical Christianity, that is the truth of the entire word of God, along with it all fulfilled in Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, sacrifice, Savior, and King, is the only system of reasoning or faith that makes any sense in the world. If you really sat down and thought about it all, take atheism for instance. 
The only system for the universe's origin is naturalistic evolution for the atheist. But if you really look to every aspect of where that theory falls apart, the reasonable conclusion is that the one who insists in it being the origin of the universe is practicing a huge amount of cognitive dissonance. A huge amount. Like we talked about before, there is a willful suppression of what must be the truth. On the other hand, the worldwide flood in Genesis addresses a lot of geological, biological, climatological, and historical questions. Every other religion or faith system in the world, in the history of the world, have holy books that were either written only by one person and therefore cannot be corroborated, or have so many writings with so many inconsistencies that they're really just based on tradition, or have no central teaching, have no clear moral teaching, or don't, don't come anywhere close to explaining the issues of life. And you've heard me say over and over again, Every single one of them teaches self-betterment at the core and a good afterlife based on how much good you can do. It's all based on what you can do. The Bible, on the other hand, was written by several authors over about a 1,500-year period. And if you really study them, not just take your friend's advice on this, if you really study them, you will find no contradictions you will find a reasonable explanation for every seeming contradiction. They all teach one story, that of God creating humanity, humanity betraying God, and God never giving up on humanity. It all culminates in God providing a way through a deliverer's death and resurrection that had been prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. And it ends where it started. Some in humanity, redeemed by God's grace and living in perfect heavens and earth with God. It ends where it begins. The Bible gives clear moral instruction and commands, along with God's reasons for why. And it reveals any answer we need to any question we have about life. You may have to do a little digging, but it's there. Like we talked about in our Easter message last week, it all begins doesn't end, but continues for eternity with Jesus. It was through Jesus that the universe and everything in it, including human beings and the human soul. It was prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament about Jesus and who he would be. Jesus is the redemption of humanity's sin if we repent and place our trust in his death and resurrection that was paid for our sin on our behalf. And Jesus will return for his children, rule over the entire earth as king, judge souls, and usher in the eternal kingdom of the new heavens and new earth. It all starts with Jesus, and it will all continue on for all of eternity with Jesus. Jesus proves himself the rightful king and Messiah, and as he points out to the Pharisees, reveals all the prophecies about this person. Their response does not change one iota the truth. And Jesus points that out to them, verses 31 through 44. 41 through 44. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? See, Jesus knew that the Pharisees thought he had beef with them, because they didn't honor him as they should. But here in verse 41, he shuts that down. That is not why he came this time around, to soak in the adulation of his fellow humans. Just like how Jesus didn't boastfully come in his own pride, he didn't come seeking adulation. He came to serve, and he came to share God's grace with those who would listen. He didn't need to puff himself up because God the Father had already provided the validity to his authority. The Pharisees, meanwhile, were the complete opposite, puffing themselves up and trying to one-up each other in terms of how well they followed the law and appeared righteous. It was the absolute definition of self-obsession, self-centeredness, self-absorption, and self-righteousness. And as Jesus says in verse 44, if they are so self-absorbed, how do they have any time to seek to glorify God, much less listen to what he is telling them through his Messiah? Self-absorption is the poison of humanity. If one is so wrapped up in their own lives, their own desires, what they want out of life, and get bent out of shape every time something happens that they don't like, that person has no time or brain power to think of the things of God, to think of how to love one another, or or need to put their trust in someone else for their eternity. One might think they're good being like that, But if you truly believe you're a good enough person to enter heaven based on your own perceived righteousness, you're completely wrong. You must believe that what seems reasonable to you must be the truth. Instead of searching God's word about what the truth really is, you're content to just suppress that truth and carry on with your life, allowing all the distractions of life and desires of the world to take over everything you think about day after day, year after year, all the way up to your dying breath, never once giving an ounce of thought to what the truth of salvation and eternity actually is. And then at that point, it's too late. Like Jesus was talking with the Pharisees in our passage this morning, all the evidence, all the fulfilled prophecies, and the truth about God's standards and God's salvation can be found quite easily in his word. You just have to care enough to set aside any preconceptions of who God is or baggage that Christianity has carried with it for thousands of years or what you heard from so-and-so about the Bible's credibility And actually look for yourself. You have to care enough about looking for it yourself. You have to care enough to break out of your own little self-absorbed world to care about what God wants you to care about. Then we will see what the truth is. Then we will see just how clear and simple and yet overwhelmingly meaningful it really is. 
The Pharisees were content to just continue on in what belief system felt right to them. And no doubt many of them died without ever seeing the truth that Jesus was graciously giving to them right here and in other places. Let not any one of us be content to just continue on in what belief system feels right to us or feels good to us, but go straight to the source of truth, God's word, and find it for ourselves. In that truth, we will find Jesus. It's right there, all of it. At the beginning and for all of eternity, we will find Jesus. I want to end with the words of this Messiah, prophet, sacrifice, priest, savior, and king, taken from the very last chapter of the very last book of the Word of God. He says, And the one sitting on the throne says, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished heard those words before when Jesus hung on the cross he said I am it is finished I am the alpha and the omega that's the beginning and last letters of the Greek language the beginning and the end to all who are thirsty I will give freely from the springs of the water of life All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversation you had with the Pharisees and what it reveals to us today about the truth of the Word of God and the truth about who you are. You are God. You are the King you, are, you have the authority to judge souls. So Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't taken this seriously in their life, that they would do so today. That they would see that the word of God points out that all of us have a sin problem and none of us had the power to do anything about it. And all we can do is repent of that sin and take Jesus' death and resurrection as being on our behalf to pay for that sin. And to, get, and to give us new life. Lord, may, may we then commit the rest of our lives to you, to living for you, to serving you. And Lord, as a church, as brothers and sisters, we all know we're sinners and we all know we're just saved by the grace of God. May we all continue to grow in that faith through the, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming us and changing the whole way we view this world and we think about everything. May we all bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me.